0: circumstances right now, and you're in financial circumstances that seem uphill. Some of you are in a crisis right now with a health situation in your own life. For some of you, it's a family situation, maybe a a relationship situation, and you say, how do I develop an uphill faith in that circumstance? Well, as I was preparing my message this morning, I saw a statement that, that's written there on your outline. It simply said, When life seems like an uphill challenge, consider the view from the top. And I like that, but I like even better. When life seems like an uphill challenge, consider the view from the cross of Calvary. I heard a story this past week about a little boy who was behind a heavy cart and he was pushing it up a hill. And this little guy, he was only about uh, two feet tall. And he was huffing and puffing and sweating as he tried to push this heavy cart up the hill. And this man was walking by and he saw this taking place and he he went over to help the little guy and he helped him get at the top of the hill. And when they were done, he he said to him, son, why in the world are you pushing this heavy cart uphill? Who told you to do this? He said, my dad did. He said, well, that's absolutely cruel. It's abusive for your dad to make you do that. And the little boy said, that's what I told my dad (laughs) he said "Well, what did your dad say he said my dad said don't worry just start pushing and some sucker will feel sorry for you and come and help you push this up the hill it's a lot easier to get uphill when you're climbing together when you're pushing together isn't it when you're not alone Back in 1989, there was the big earthquake that hit the San Francisco and Bay Area, and the Nimitz Freeway collapsed, killing 41 people in that tragedy. And you know what the engineers discovered about the collapse of that freeway? It wasn't the lack of vertical support, because that held strong, but rather it was the lack of horizontal support. You know, many of you you have found a strong vertical relationship with the Heavenly Father. In fact, this is strong with your heart in the Lord Jesus Christ. Dozens of you found that relationship here in your lifetime at the Springfield Church of Christ, and we are always excited to see that establish and happen. But to get through the uphill challenges of life, you're not only going to need that vertical connection with God, you're going to need the horizontal connection that comes with other people. God made you to need relationships. You know, all you got to do is go back to the start of creation in Scripture. God created this world, and he looked at all the plants and at all the animals, and he said it was good. And then God created all the fish of the sea, and, and all that was good. He created the first human being, Adam, and he said it's very good. But it wasn't long before God noticed there was something not good in his creation. He noticed the aloneness in Adam's soul. He noticed the isolation in his life. And we read in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, it says, The Lord God said, it's not good for man to be alone. It's not good. And so for the sake of ending aloneness, God created woman, and they would have this relationship with each other. And because of her childbearing abilities and capabilities, that would lead to the formation of a child and they would have another relationship. And I would venture to say it's a very expensive relationship if you have more than one child. But then as their family grew, there would be neighbors, there would be colleagues, there would be friends, so they would not be alone. It's all part of design. The English writer John Donne was absolutely right when he said, no man is an island separate to himself. God made us to need each other, to need the strength of those horizontal relationships. In fact, Jesus himself knew that. In his three-year ministry upon this earth, what did he do? He picked, hand-picked 12 guys from off the beaches, from off the streets to do community with to do life with together and to bond together. And in those three years, he became particularly close to Peter, James, and John. And in the early church, they took their cues from Jesus. When the first church began in Jerusalem, it quickly grew to thousands of people. But they didn't meet in, in most of the time in large groups like this on a Sunday morning together. The scripture says rather in passages like Acts 2.46... They broke bread where? In their homes, and they ate together. Acts 5.42, day after day in the temple courts and from house to house. They never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news about Jesus is the Messiah. Acts 18.7, when Paul left the synagogue, he went next door to the house of Titius Justice, a worshiper of God. In Acts 20.20, 20, Paul would go on to say, you know that I've not hesitated to preach anything that will be helpful to you, but I've taught you publicly and from house to house. You see, they met in small groups and in connection groups, being the church for each other. And their differences faded. People from different economic levels, people from different races, people from different social stratas in that society in the day. Men and women all came together and they were no longer enemies they came together and became the church to each other. And it was these horizontal relationships. So where did they learn that? Where did they get their cue to say, this is how God wants his church to be? Well, if you have your Bible, I'm going to ask you to open with me to Matthew, the 26th chapter. Matthew chapter 26. And I'm going to say, this is our main text for the day. And because I want you in God's word... Or, or, and you could have the, the physical scripture before you. Maybe you've got to go to this on, on your smartphone or whatever. But I'm not going to put these verses up on the screen because I want you to be in God's word, okay? And I want you to catch this. As believers in Christ, we can be certain that God provides us with the bonds of relationships to end the aloneness, to end the isolation, the separation, and gives us strength to see things from that mountaintop of life. In Matthew chapter 26, we find Jesus and his disciples in an upper room. He knew these men that had traveled with him for, for three years. He'd laugh with them. He taught them. He'd done life with them for three years. And he knew he was going to be leaving them very soon. And life for them was about to become a huge uphill challenge. Life was going to be tough without him. Their whole lives for three years had just centered around Jesus and he did not want them to drop out of the race when they stumbled or when the race got tough. If they were going to eventually change the world, he knew that they needed to be bonded and united together. They couldn't be lone rangers. And so just before he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, just before he is arrested, and brutalized and mocked before Jews, Romans, and pagans alike, just before he's crucified, Jesus goes to this upper room. And it becomes a place of bonding because we all need relationships like this in our life. If we're going to climb uphill together, we're only going to do it in relationship to other people. And so I want to look at Matthew 26 through the lens of how these believers bonded. And I want to give you six things today, and I hope you'll pencil these in on your outline and maybe discover what brought their closeness, what brought them the bonding and unity and that undying friendship of this group. The first thing I want you to see is that they were serving together. They served together. Look in the scripture this morning in verse 17. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and they asked, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? All of the countryside is flooding into Jerusalem to celebrate this Passover. Now understand the Passover is to the Jews what the 4th of July is to us in America. It's a celebration of their freedom. And they're remembering the days of the slavery of God's people in Egypt. The day when the death angels swept across the land, killing every firstborn child. Except for the homes of those that had slaughtered an innocent lamb and painted the blood of that lamb on the doorpost of their home. It all foreshadowed another innocent lamb that would come. The one that John the Baptist would look to and say, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. This is a really, really big deal. It's a really highly anticipated celebration in every Jewish person's life. Now it goes on to say, Jesus replied to them, I want you to go into the city to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says, my appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. And so the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, And they prepared the Passover. Here are these men putting a feast together. So Jesus sent them to get things ready. And I think he knew they needed a positive experience of working together, bonding together, serving. Because great things happen when people get their hands dirty, right? When people roll up their sleeves and they cook together. Or they clean together, they sweat together. They roll up their sleeves and say, whatever the task is, we're in this together. Cheryl and I, uh, our oldest daughter, Emma, is 21 this year. But I was going through my phone uh, through pictures recently. I'd kind of hit that cap, you know, where you got to start deleting things because your phone is getting slow and, and you can't take any more pictures. And I found that I had kept dozens of pictures of a science experiment that Emma had done at Shawnee years and years ago. And I thought as I looked through all these photos, and and let me tell you, they were not gripping photos, okay? The project she did was called The Effect of Different Solutions on the Rate of Dissolution for Aspirin. That's gripping, right? I know. Um, Makes sense why she's in law school when she titles things like that. But, but, But what she did was she submerged all these aspirin in these different solutions, 15 or 20 different ones. And here we are, we've got the table covered with all these little Tupperware containers, and the countertop is covered with these Tupperware containers, and I'm taking pictures of every one of them over periods of time to see how these things dissolve. Now, I don't think that the world became a better place because of that project. I know my headaches didn't improve because I knew how fast a pill could dissolve. But do you know what the, the really great part of that science project was? We did it together. It brought us together. Now, Cheryl was a little bit nervous when the night before it was due, we still weren't done yet. And frankly, she just wanted her Tupperware back. You know, so she didn't experience the bonding like Emma and I did on that project. But, but there's a great satisfaction When you're able to look and say, look what we did together. Ecclesiastes chapter 4 verse 9 says this. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. And part of the good return when two are working together is this bonding that takes place. If you've ever played on a softball team, you, you can see it taking place. You know, you could see it anytime someone in this church moves, and we all pitch in to help that person move, or or maybe it's working with somebody else on a ministry team here at the church. You develop this friendship and this kind of sense of family with each other, and there's some good-natured kidding, you know, some cajoling going along with each other. But there's a sense of satisfaction when you can step back and say, we were part of something as a team. You can see it when people work together cleaning here at the church. I can see it when people volunteer and work with Susan on vacation Bible school. I see it within those that serve up here with the worship team and the AV team in the back. I've seen people on short-term missions trips. They'll go and serve just for a week somewhere, but sometimes they will make lifelong friendships. And I think about that. And you see men and women of our armed services that have served in the midst of battle. Why do they dedicate themselves to such vigorous training? You know, there's a lot of reasons, but usually in the midst of the task or in the midst of the battle, it's not because of the cause. It's not because of the country or for an ideal. What's it for? It's for their buddy that's in the foxhole next to them. It's for that band of brothers lined up on jump seats, ready to achieve what seems to be impossible as a team fellow soldiers that they love and are devoted to, and they serve together. Jesus knew the people who served together would bond together. And so he had his disciples together that night in the upper room, preparing a Passover meal to be held. Now, as a side note, did you know that they got to experience a miracle as they worked together preparing that meal? Mark and Luke's gospel tell us that Jesus says, you're going to go into this town, and I want you to follow this random guy who's carrying a water jar. You fall into his house, and then you tell him, this is where we're going to celebrate the Passover. Now, it's a miracle, number one, because men in that day typically didn't carry or fetch water. If you remember the story of the woman at the well, it was usually the women of the town that would do that. But you're going to find this lone guy who's carrying this water jar, and you're going to follow him. And the early church believed that the place they followed him to was none other in John Mark's mother's house in Jerusalem. Now, if that's true, he led them back to a place they'd already been before. They just didn't know that they were going there. It's the place that Jesus chose to eat the Passover. It would be the place that the disciples would be locked into for fear in the upper room when Jesus came back from the dead. And it would be in this house, in Acts chapter 12, verse 12, that when Peter is released miraculously from prison, It says, when this had dawned on him, Peter, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who's also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Now, if that is true or not, it doesn't matter because the miraculous fingerprints of Jesus were all over this upper room where they would share this meal. And these disciples would have missed the blessing if they had not bonded together and served together. Now, the second thing about that upper room was, obviously, they were eating together. They were eating together. There's something to be said, isn't there, for sitting down and sharing a meal with other people? Our verse says this today in verse 20. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table. You know they, they didn't use chairs for meals in those days. They had a low table and cushions, and usually you would lean on your left arm with your feet behind you, and that's how the meal would, would, would be served he was leaning at the table with the twelve, and while they were what? Eating. Jesus said, now I'm, I'm going to pause right there. You don't usually find enemies, do you, sitting down to share a meal? Because meals actually bond people together. You know how it is, don't you? When you meet somebody new, you know maybe for the first time, and it's kind of awkward, and you're just kind of getting acquainted, it might feel a little stiff. But, but then you have dinner together. Or you go out to Wendy's together or something, and suddenly what begins to take place? You start to bond. I can see it all the time when people want to kind of test the water of church by dipping their toe in. You know, they come to this church for the first time, and maybe they'll come to the Easter egg hunt that we're going to have next Saturday morning. Or, or they'll come to the fall harvest party, and they'll get to know a few people. And, and the moment they start eating together, you could put it on your calendar You could almost mark it down at the time. That's the moment they start to make a real connection with the church. I get excited, honestly, when I hear some of you say, Bill, I'm meeting so-and-so at Panera. We're going to have lunch together. Or you invite a guest or a visitor out uh, to coffee expressions or, uh, you know, Starbucks or, or Dunkin' Donuts or something. I'm convinced how important that is. I'm convinced one of the reasons so many families are struggling these days is because we just don't eat meals together anymore. 80% of dysfunctional families say we don't eat meals together anymore. We don't even sit down together. You know what studies show the number one thing is that national merit scholars have in common? There's a lot of things they don't have in common. National merit scholars, they come from across the board. They don't have the same academic history. They don't have the same study habits, but the number one thing they have in common is every one of them say, we share a meal together as a family every day. Unless you think I'm making too much of that, God tried to impress that upon us right from the start. All the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 7, we ask the question, how are we going to raise these kids? How are we going to raise moral young people today to value themselves the way God values them, to value their life, to value God. Well, God himself said to us as parents, impress them on your children. Just make sure you drop them off at Sunday school. No. Just make sure you bring them to VBS for a week in the summer, right? No. Just by doing a few good things together. No. He says you talk about them when you sit at home when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. In other words, you talk about God in the context of everyday life as you spend time together. So my suggestion to all of you is it's very simple. When you go home before you have a meal together, make the rule. You know, all the electronic devices are off. TV's off, music is off, uh, earbuds are out iPods, iPhones, Androids are in the next room. You know, you don't want your kids texting underneath the table while, while you're eating. Then reach up and hold each other's hands and just, just offer a quick prayer together. We do this as a family all the time. Just, just say, God, thank you for all the things that you've given us, the goodness that you've provided. That's it. Dads, every one of you guys can do that. Moms, every one of you could lead in that, but just join hands in a quick prayer no matter where you are. And then we eat. You know, we laugh, we talk, we reminisce on the day. We find out what's going on in our kids' lives. And for that five, ten minutes, we reconnect. It's still one of my favorite times of my day with Cheryl, just Cheryl and me. You ever notice at a funeral, at a memorial service, it's really solemn. There's a lot of tears. There's a lot of weeping and sobbing. And everybody's having a difficult time. But after the funeral, there's usually a what? There's usually a funeral dinner. And you'll find people laughing. You'll you'll find people remembering some humorous times, sharing memories. It's extremely healthy. And in this particular meal in the upper room with Jesus, this is like a funeral meal, only Jesus hasn't died yet. He's going to die the next day. So it's almost a a pre-funeral meal. But it's creating a bond between these disciples and Jesus. Friends, if you're not bonding with someone in your life right now, can I make an educated guess? I'm willing to bet you're not eating with people right now. If you're not bonding with people, you're probably eating alone. So so what's the harm? Plan some cookouts. Take someone out. You know, pitch in for a picnic. Invite the preacher over for steak and lobster something like that. You know, people who eat together bond together. One of my favorite examples of this is Matthew exchanging his lunch table at work for his table at home. We read in in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5, after this, Jesus went out. He saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said. So Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. And then... Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. Friends, Jesus loved to bond with sinners like you and me over meals. So we can do the same. Well, here's the third thing. Those disciples in the upper room that night, they were grieving together. Because at this Passover meal, Jesus shares something that's very disturbing to them. Look at verse 21. While they were eating, Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. They were very sad, and they began to say to him one after the other, Surely you don't mean me, Lord. Jesus replied, The one that's dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go, just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, "'Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi,' and Jesus answered, "'You've said so.'" You know, every one of the disciples around the table that night said, "Uh, "'I'm not going to betray you, Jesus,' but as they sadly searched their hearts, every one of them began to ask, "'Is it me?' And it was disturbing to them. They had walked with Jesus for three years." They had been friends with Jesus and they couldn't imagine anyone in this close group ever betraying him. I bet they even thought, you know, if it's one of us, the one we're sure it can't be, it's got to be Judas. He's the most trustworthy of the group. He's the accountant of the group. He watches our money. He's the one guy that even if we all fall away, we know at least we can trust Judas. It's not going to be him. And then on top of this in John 13 and through 17... Through Jesus' teaching, Jesus says some some things to them like, I'm going somewhere right now, and where I go, uh, you can't go. You're going to be alone for a time, and, and they're deeply troubled. You know, our culture tries to suppress or discourage sadness and grief and tears. But have you noticed how those three things serve to bond people together? because in those moments we draw strength from each other. Families seem closer when they are allowed to to have their guards drop, to have the mask pulled off and share at an honest level. Somebody once said, tears are the reflection of the soul. There was a housekeeper once of a very affluent family who went to the funeral of the matriarch of that family, her lifelong employer, For over 40 years, she had worked for her, and someone came up to her and said, I am so sorry for the loss of your friend. And and this woman that had worked for this other for 40 years said, Oh, we, we weren't friends. We were just acquaintances. She said, Because we never shed any tears together. Friends aren't friends unless they shed tears. Isn't that true? I mean, think about that. Think about the people that you are closest to, and I'll bet you've wept with them at some point in your life. We all have those major crossroads in life that are full of grief, or times when the roof just caves in, and it looks like this giant, unclimbable mountain ahead of us, and there's no one to help us in sight, and God wants us to move. He wants us to go through this stuff together. Listen, if you want to have somebody that is there for you to help carry the burden when the time comes that when you get that phone call in the middle of the night that changes everything when you get the wind knocked out of you or the crisis hits or the phone call comes then friends make that connection with someone who's there when the moment happens now they may not have miracle cures for you they may not even know what to say but they're going to be sitting right there with you they'll pray They'll send emails. They'll take you out for meals. They'll leave groceries on your back porch. They'll pray with you. I mean, I don't know how people in this world survive without Jesus. And I don't know how people in this world survive without those horizontal connections with friends. Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 10 says, going on, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. But notice this, if either of them falls down, One can help the other up, but pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Jesus shared this painful news with those in the upper room that night so that they could grieve together and the process they could help each other uphill. Well, the fourth thing we see in these verses these guys doing is we see them communing together. It was there in that upper room, the Lord's Supper, Communion or, or Eucharist, as some of you grew up with, was served for the first time. Verse 26. While they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out For many, for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever as followers of Jesus, friends, we meet around this communion table, it ought to bind us more deeply to each other. I was sitting around with a group of guys once, and one of them suggested, hey, why don't we share the most meaningful communion meditation or experience that we've had in our experience? And one guy said, mine was at the North American Christian Convention. I'd been there for about three days, and I was there with a group of volunteers that I serve with at church. And after three days of worshiping together, you know, with these great praise musicians, after three days of some great Bible teaching, you know, sharing all of our meals together, going back to the same hotel rooms at night, in the last session, we had this this communion service together. And there I was with this group of people that that I serve with, and, and I just wept. I'm just so glad for what God's done in my life through them. One other guy said, I, I, I've, my time was when we were camping in the Smoky Mountains with a group of young people. And he said, we were all there together. And uh, we were, and I knew when he said camping, what he really meant was, you know, we were in these five-star hotel rooms on wheels uh, where we've got lawn chairs inside that we pull out and flat screen TVs and real plates. So that wasn't really camping. But, but he said, at the end of the week, We all put our chair in circles, and we just took communion together. As I think to my own life, there are many times that this table has meant so much to me. The day that I married Cheryl as part of our our wedding service, we shared communion together. I think of one of the first times we took it as a family on a Christmas Eve candlelight service. I had all the men and women in the church who ever happened to be the leader of their home come and, and take the plate and go back and serve their own families. And I got to take that plate and, and serve my wife, and my family. All of the times that, that God has reminded me, this is what I think of you, Bill. I love you so much that I would allow my son to give his blood for you so that you could know me. It wasn't that long ago I lost one of my my best prayer warriors and mentors in this life. And sitting there at his funeral, it did not surprise me that Don had arranged that we would all take communion together. And I thought, man, how many times did I hear him give communion meditations? How many times did I take communion with him here? And now i got a brother in heaven who's celebrating communion until we're together. And and it wrecked me to think of that. But as I listened to every single one of the guys in that group share of a time, I realized every one of them had grown out of a special time of bonding with other followers of Jesus. People in our family, people we had served with, people that were in home care groups or friends. And I want you to know, I I consider this a high privilege to celebrate communion in, in a community of faith where we do it every week together. Every week we get to take part in communion where we see you matter this much to God, and you say, but Bill, doesn't it for you, I mean, sometimes I wrestle with this, doesn't it it lose its impact because we do this every week? No, and I don't think it does for you either. How can you tell someone that you love them too much? Have you ever grown tired of somebody telling you sincerely and honestly that they love you? I think about all of my 51 years of life. Friends, I have eaten thousands of meals in my lifetime. I can't tell you what I had for breakfast two days ago, you know, let alone what all those meals were. But I'll tell you what, I've enjoyed every one of them, and every one of them has nourished me. And tomorrow morning when I wake up, I thought, you know, I'm not going to think, I'm not going to eat today because I ate breakfast yesterday. No. I'm going I'm to be nourished yet again. And in the same way, every week I am nourished when I remember how much I matter to God and how thankful I am for you as a community of people right here as the body of Christ at the Springfield Church of Christ. Communion is a time to celebrate. We celebrate the forgiveness of our sins. And as we look around this room, we celebrate the body of Christ it's here at this table that we release grudges. We forgive the person sitting next to us as we, forgive, if we want to be forgiven because that's what Jesus wants. Number five, these men were dreaming together, and I'm not going to spend time on this because I want to bear this out in the coming weeks, but in verse 28, Jesus says to them, but I, I say to you, I'll not drink of the fruit of this vine from now on until the day that I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. More about that in the weeks to come. There's one last thing that bonded these men together before they left the upper room. And it might surprise you. The last thing they did was singing together. Now, some people think the last thing that the disciples did before they left the upper room was that one of the men said, hey, you guys on that side of the table, come on over here. Let's get a good picture of us all together on this side of the table. Leonardo, grab the paint. You're going to paint us now. That did not happen. Leonardo da Vinci did not paint the Lord's Supper until the 1400s when he was born, okay? But Matthew 26, verse 30 in our passage today says when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. They sang, and then they left. The last thing these guys did before facing the downhill slope to the Garden of Gethsemane and the uphill slope to Calvary. It probably started pretty awkward, I mean, anytime you get a group of guys to sing together, it usually starts out a little bit awkward, a little off key, but when all the guys finally join in, it can be a really powerful thing. You know, the Bible says in Psalm 22:3, 3, yet you are holy, O you who inhabit the praises of Israel. And you talk about bonding. Whenever we praise God, he's here. He inhabits the praise of his people. And I have to say, I have seen so many of you growing in this area. I spoke with a sister in Christ this past week who listens to WEEC in her radio, in her car, on the way to work every day, and she worships. I've heard some of you singing as you kind of walk down the hallway. I know that you're growing in this area, and I'm so proud when I see some of you lifting your hands in prayer, as the scripture says. And some of you say, Bill, you don't want me to sing. I can't sing. I can't carry a tune. Psalm 66.1 then tells you, shout for joy to the God, all the earth. Shout, make a joyful noise unto the Lord. If you think you can't sing, you can still do that. Dan Dean of Phillips Craig and Dean wrote a song, a great song, about what God hears when we sing. And it says this, God loves to hear the wind sing as it whistles through the pines and the mountain leaves. And he loves to hear the raindrops as they splash on the ground in a magic melody. God smiles in sweet approval as the waves crash into the rocks in harmony. And creation joins in unity to sing to him majestic symphonies. But his favorite song of all is the song of the redeemed. When lost sinners now made clean lift their voices loud and strong. When those purchased by his blood lift the song of love. There's nothing more he'd rather hear nor more pleasing to his ear as his favorite song of all. It's not just melodies and harmonies that catch his attention. It's not clever lines and phrases that cause God to stop and listen. But when anyone set free washed and bought by Calvary, begins to sing. That's his favorite song of all. Friends, if anybody in this world has something to sing about, it's us, we who have been washed by the blood of the Lamb. We have a reason to sing. We have amazing grace. We have a great Savior, a King, a God, a Lord. Amen? We have a reason to sing, and it is a privilege to sing, My Chains Are Gone. It's a privilege to sing, Your Grace is Enough, God, or God Alone, Cornerstone, Weak Made Strong in the Savior's Love. It is a privilege to sing, I Love to Tell the Story, but God's favorite song of all is the song that you sing to him. Now listen, from the beginning of time, God designed us to need these horizontal relationships so we can make it uphill together together. And so as you look at that list I've given you this morning, do you have a group of people like this in your life where you're serving together, where you're eating together or grieving together, where you're communing together, dreaming together, singing together? Do you have that in your life? Because people who bond together like that, friends, they can turn a community upside down. They can turn the world upside down. And my challenge for you today is to drop your guard. Take your mask off and get into an upper room somewhere and bond with some people that you can live this life with together. God's dream for his church has always been that we would not be something we go to, but we would be something that we are, the church. We wouldn't just come, And stare at the back of somebody's head for an hour, hour and 15 minutes on the weekends. He wants us to circle up Monday through Saturday and look into each other's eyes and do life together. Now some of you, you have that list in your life and you're thankful for it. And maybe today you ought to honor God and give him a praise for that. Or maybe you see this and there's some dimension of that where you know as a group that you meet with, you can grow that. You could say, you know what, we we need to be serving more together. Let, let's roll up our sleeves and do something for God together. Some of you look at that and say, but we need to be eating more together. Others of you know, you don't have this in your life. It's foreign to you to hear all of this, and maybe you feel you don't have time. Bill, I, I just got so much going on with work and family. I don't have time for friends. If that's true, then you're busier than God ever made you to be, friends because even the Son of God chose 12, and especially three, to be close to upon this earth, and look what he did. When you're bonded to others like he was in this church, the experience we have is priceless. Those are the people that stay faithful to God over the long haul. The ones that are bonded like this are the ones that that realize their full potential in Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to ask the worship team if they would come back up, and I'm going to ask our servers if they would come back to the front here at this time. And we're going to follow the example of the disciples in that upper room. We're going to commune together, and then we're going to sing a song just like they did, uh, and then we're going to leave here. But I want the rest of you to kind of suspend this moment. I want you to imagine you're one of Jesus' 12 in the upper room that night. There you are. This man that you have walked with for three years. You have watched him. You have listened to him. You've seen him restore sight to the blind. You've seen him heal the skin diseased of a leper. You've seen him raise Lazarus back to life. And in less than 24 hours, you're going to see this friend die. He's going to be nailed to a cross. Can you you ever imagine forgetting that? Well, Jesus took the bread and he took the cup in the upper room that night and he gave it to his disciples and he said, remember me.